Section 1 of Pitt by Archibald Primrose, Lord Rosebery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Pitt by Archibald Primrose, Lord Rosebery. Section 1. Chapter 1. Part 1. Youth. William Pitt the Younger was born at Hayes in 1759, in the full splendor of his father's famous ministry, in the year that saw Quebec fall before the dying wolf, that saw the glorious but inconclusive victory of Minden, that saw Hawke in a November storm crush the French fleet off Belle-Isle, the year that produced Burns and Wilberforce. None, perhaps, has given us names so honored and cherished by the human race. Of his parents, it is needless to say anything, except in so far as they influenced his career. His father, William Pitt, Earl of Chatham, was the most striking figure and the most dazzling statesman of his time, while if one may judge of his speeches by their effect, he may be held the greatest orator that England has ever produced." Lady Chatham was the only sister of two remarkable brothers, one, George Grenville, the obstinate minister of an obstinate king, did much to involve us in our most disastrous and unnatural war. The other, Richard Earl Temple, welded his family into a disciplined and formidable force, which lasted as a potent factor in politics for at least two generations, and accomplished its persistent object in the third by obtaining the luckless dukedom of Buckingham for its chief. With such parents, the younger Pitt was born a politician. His rare qualities of mind were from his earliest childhood directed and trained for parliamentary work. It did not, indeed, at first appear probable that he would survive to realize the designs of his father, who himself had suffered from the gout before leaving Eton. A feeble constitution hardly promised life, much less vigor. But fortified by floods of port wine, the prescription of Lord Chatham's favorite physician, Dr. Addington, the father of the prime minister, it enabled him to live to be forty-seven, and sustained for nearly twenty years, almost unaided, the government of the country. From six to fourteen, however, his health was so indifferent that for more than half that period he was unable to apply himself to study, and when, at the latter age, he went as an undergraduate to Cambridge, it stands recorded that he was accompanied by a nurse. In the autumn of that year, 1773, his disorder reached its crisis. He returned home dangerously ill but on his recovery he seems to have secured a share of health sufficient for the purposes of public life, and troubled only by periodic fits of the gout, then the appanage of statesmanship, which he owed less to his original disease than its original remedy. But his sickly childhood only makes his undoubted precocity the more extraordinary. Delicate health probably confined him to study, as it had confined his father. We know that he bought Howlwood because he used to go bird-nesting there as a child. Otherwise, his nursery annals point entirely to learning. He was indeed one of the rare instances, like John Mill and Macaulay, of infant prodigy, 
maturing into brilliant manhood. From his earliest years, his parents' letters abound in allusions to his talents and character. Eager Mr. William, the counselor, the philosopher, are their nicknames for the marvelous child. In 1766, when he was seven, his tutor writes, Lady Hester and Mr. Pitt continue to astonish as much as ever, and I see no possibility of diminishing their ardor either by too much business or too much relaxation. When I am alone reading, Mr. Pitt, if it is anything he may attend to, constantly places himself by me when his steady attention and sage remarks are not only entertaining but useful, as they frequently throw a light upon the subject and strongly impress it in my memory. At the same age, he appears to have displayed the dignity and self-possession that marked him in after life, and a trifling anecdote of his stay at Weymouth in that year records him as having dumbfoundered mature observers by these qualities. Another and a later tutor, Bishop Tomlin, says that although he was little more than fourteen years of age when he went to reside at the university and had labored under the disadvantage of frequent ill health, the knowledge which he then possessed was very considerable, and in particular his proficiency in the learned languages was probably greater than ever was acquired by any other person in such early youth. In Latin authors he seldom met with difficulty, and it was no uncommon thing for him to read into English six or seven pages of Thucydides which he had not previously seen, without more than two or three mistakes, and sometimes without even one. It was by Lord Chatham's particular desire that Thucydides was the first Greek book which Mr. Pitt read after he came to college. The only other wish ever expressed by his lordship relative to his son's studies was that I would read Polybius with him. But his latest and most pregnant study, more important to his career than the strange rhapsody of Lycophron, or even Polybius, was the great work of Adam Smith. He almost alone of the statesmen of that day had mastered and assimilated the wealth of nations before entering into public life. A graceful story has been told in which Pitt is made to declare his indebtedness himself. Dundas asked Adam Smith to dinner, but the philosopher did not arrive till all were seated. When he entered, the whole company rose to their feet, and Pitt gaily exclaimed, We will stand till you are seated, for we are all your scholars. The elder Pitt, who seems to have written many of his letters in a sort of classical nightmare, was, it may be gathered from this very pedantry, no great scholar. It was to his training, however, that Pitt owed not merely the power to translate at sight, which so astonished his tutor, but that fluency of majestic diction and command of correct expression which afterwards distinguished him as an orator. His father would make the boy of an evening read freely into English the passage which he had construed with his tutor in the morning. So much did this grow into a habit that when in later years an ancient writer was quoted, Pitt always rendered the sense of the sentence into flowing English as if for his own use before he seemed to enter into it. It was to these lessons that he always attributed his ready copiousness of language. What was scarcely less valuable, Lord Chatham, who we are told made a point of giving, 
daily instruction and readings from the Bible to his children, encouraged his son to talk to him without reserve on every subject, so that the boy who seems to have returned the boundless affection with which his father regarded him was in close and constant communication with one of the first minds of the age. How strictly political was the bias that his mind thus obtained, we see from a tragedy, Laurentius, king of Clarinium, still extant, composed by William at the age of thirteen, in which there is no trace of love, but which has for its plot a struggle between a faithful minister and an unscrupulous conspirator about a regency. The details of the childhood of great men are apt to be petty and cloying. Hero worship extended to the bib and the porringer is more likely to repel than attract. But in the case of Pitt, these details are doubly important, for they form the key to his career, which without them would be inexplicable. They alone explain that political precocity and that long parliamentary ascendancy which still puzzle posterity. For he went into the House of Commons as an heir enters his home. He breathed in his native atmosphere. He had indeed breathed no other. In the nursery, in the schoolroom, at the university, he lived in its temperature. It had been, so to speak, made over to him as a bequest by its unquestioned master. Throughout his life, from the cradle to the grave, he may be said to have known no wider existence. The objects and amusements that other men seek in a thousand ways were for him all concentrated there. It was his mistress, his stud, his dice-box, his game-preserve. It was his ambition, his library, his creed. For it, and it alone, had the consummate Chatham trained him from his birth. No young Hannibal was ever more solemnly devoted to his country than Pitt to Parliament, and the austerity of his political consecration lends additional interest to the records of his childhood, for they furnish almost the only gleams of ease and nature that play on his life. He was destined at one bound to attain that supreme but isolated position, the first necessity of which is self-control, and behind the imperious mask of power, he all but concealed the softer emotions of his earlier years. Grief for the loss of his sister and her husband are the only instances of human weakness that break the stern impressiveness of his life. Up to that last year, when fate pressed pitilessly on the dying man. From the time that he went to Cambridge as a boy of fourteen, with his tutor and his nurse, he seems, with one short interval, to have left youth and gaiety behind. All this does not amount to much, but it must be remembered that the life of Pitt has yet to be written. That by Richards Green, who wrote under the name of Gifford, need scarcely be mentioned. That by Tomline, has been severely judged, more with reference to what it might have been than to what it is, for there are worse books. But the shores of biographical enterprise are strewn with the wrecks of the private secretaries of that period. There is Tomline, there is Trotter, there is even Stapleton, and there is Bourrienne. The Life by Lord Stanhope remains a standard book. It was written by one born under the shadow of Pitt, and reared in the traditions of hereditary reverence for his name. But it is no disparagement to those delightful volumes to say that there remains 
a dormant mass of material that was not then, even if it is now, accessible, which must throw a new light on this period. There are the papers of Grenville and Harraby and Canning, of Liverpool and Lonsdale and Mulgrave, more especially the collections of Buckingham and of Tomline, which it may be presumed have been rather tapped than drained. The same surmise may be entertained by those who have read what has been published from the archives of Rose and Malmesbury. There is also the State Paper Office, which, especially in the Foreign Department, seems destined to elucidate much of Pitt's policy. Lord Stanhope gathered and garnered with unwearied sympathy and acuteness, but the materials which he utilized appear on examination to be scanty enough compared to those which it would seem must necessarily be in existence, even if the papers of George III, which have so mysteriously vanished, should never again see the light of day. Pitt was admitted at Pembroke Hall on the 26th of April, 1773, when he was not yet fourteen. By the kindness of the Reverend C. E. Searle, Doctor of Divinity, Master of Pembroke College, it is possible to print here the letter with which Chatham introduced his boy to the authorities. It is addressed to Mr. Joseph Turner, then Senior Tutor of the College and Senior Wrangler, in 1767. Burton Pinsent, October 3, 1773. Sir, apprehensions of gout about this season forbid my undertaking a journey to Cambridge with my son. I regret this more particularly, as it deprives me of an occasion of being introduced to your personal acquaintance and that of the gentlemen of your society, a loss I shall much wish to repair at some other time. Mr. Wilson, whose admirable instruction and affectionate care have brought my son early to receive such further advantages as he cannot fail to find under your eye, will present him to you. He is of a tender age and of a health not yet firm enough to be indulged to the full in the strong desire he has to acquire useful knowledge. An ingenious mind and docility of temper will, I know, render him conformable to your discipline in all points. Too young for the irregularities of a man, I trust he will not, on the other hand, prove troublesome by the puerile sallies of a boy. Such as he is, I am happy to place him at Pembroke, and I need not say how much of his parents' hearts goes along with him. I am with great esteem and regard, sir, your most faithful and most obedient humble servant, Chatham. At the university, Pitt led the austere life of a student, never missing hall or chapel or lecture, save when illness hindered. He took his degree by privilege at the age of seventeen, but continued to reside at Cambridge for nearly four years afterwards, seeing rather more of his contemporaries, and with habits somewhat less ascetic than heretofore. He had always allowed himself the relaxation of a trip to London to hear his father speak, his first speech lasted above an hour, and the second half an hour, surely the two finest speeches that were ever made before, unless by himself, writes the enthusiastic son, and in his nineteenth year it was his fate to support the old statesman to the last scene in the House of Lords. 
Two months later, he was bearing his part as chief mourner in the gorgeous procession that followed, in the heraldic epithets for once not misapplied, the noble and puissant William Pitt, Earl of Chatham, to that grave in Westminster Abbey, which in less than thirty years was in still darker days to open for himself. His father's disregard of money, as complete as his own, left him with an income of from 250 to 300 pounds a year, nor was this immediately available. His uncle, Lord Temple, advanced the sum necessary to purchase him a set of rooms at Lincoln's Inn. He began to keep his terms early in 1779, and although continuing his residence at Cambridge, to sip with prudence the cup of London amusements. His share of these mainly consisted in attendance at parliamentary debates, where he became acquainted with Fox, already a star of the first magnitude. Nor did he shrink from a visit to the opera or an occasional rout. He was called to the bar in June of 1780. His residence at Cambridge began at this time to have an object not less solid than study, for he came to be considered in the light of a possible candidate for the representation of the university in Parliament. The eagerness with which he embraced this opportunity betokened the mind set steadfastly in this direction by every influence and predisposition of youth. The dissolution came in September 1780, when he stood for the university and was left at the bottom of the poll. But immediately afterwards, the young Duke of Rutland, who had been warmly interested in Pitt's success, applied to Sir James Lowther for a seat for his friend. Lowther, afterwards Lord Lonsdale, exercised in the north of England a sway which we can now hardly measure or imagine. In 1782, he had offered to build and equip, at his own expense, a vessel of war with seventy guns. Boswell and Wilberforce have borne almost trembling testimony to the splendor of his court, which exhibited extreme hospitality tempered by extreme awe, and which northern politicians haunted like a northern St. James's. One of the chief secrets, indeed, of his power lay in his parliamentary influence, the extent of which was exactly defined in the deferential nickname of the Premier's Cat of Nine Tales. To one of his nine boroughs he now nominated Pitt, who accordingly in January 1781 took his seat in the House of Commons as member for Appleby. Exactly three years later he was to enter it as Prime Minister and hold that post with unexampled power for eighteen years. At the time that Pitt stepped into public life, the administration of Lord North was in its agony. Its thin-spun life was only preserved by the exertions of the king. The good-humored cynicism of the minister had long ago given way to the most dismal apprehension. He was more and more determined to resign, but he had to deal with a stern taskmaster. The character of George III is one which it is not easy to understand, if we take the common and erroneous view that human nature is consistent and coherent. The fact is that congruity is the exception, and that time and circumstance and opportunity paint with heedless hands and garish colors on the canvas of a man's life, so that the result 
is less frequently a finished picture than a palette of squeezed tints. George III, who gloried in the name of Britain, who obtained his initial popularity by being an Englishman born, and who indeed never traveled farther than York, was the German princelet of his day. No petty elector or margrave, not the ruler of Hesse who sold his people by the thousand as material of war, held more absolute the view of property as applied to his dominions or subjects. He saw in the American war not vanished possibilities in the guidance of a new world, but the expropriation of an outlying estate, the loss of which diminished his consequence. He fought for it, therefore, as doggedly as a lord of Ravenswood for his remaining acres. As to his ministers, he regarded them as the mere weapons of a warfare waged on behalf of autocracy. So long as they served him blindly, he lavished caresses on them. From the moment that they showed independence, he discarded them like old coats, and old coats which had become repulsive to him. It is probable that he never liked Butte, and that Butte's direct influence over him has been greatly exaggerated. But while North was the complacent grand vizier, nothing was too good for him. The sink ports and the garter, money, terms of endearment were all freely given. At the time, however, of Pitt's entry into Parliament, the minister was flinching under the terrific punishment of the opposition and the severity of continual disaster. It was clear that he could not long endure, and the affectionate monarch was cooling down to freezing point. From the time of his resignation to his death, Lord North remained a stranger to George III. It is doubtful whether the king ever regarded Pitt otherwise than as an indispensable officer of whom, with his damned long obstinate face, he stood painfully in awe. For Pitt, alive and in power, the sole bulwark against Fox and the deluge, he was willing to do anything, to pay his bills or to double the peerage. But for the dead Pitt's debts, he had not a farthing to spare, and he ungraciously ignored and even denied his former promise to pay thirty thousand pounds for that object. At one time he found in Addington the servant that he required, and he wrote to him in terms scarcely less fond than those which James employed to Villiers or Maria Theresa to Kaunitz. He adjured the minister to take horse exercise he waited patiently with his family at Addington's house till Addington should come. The favorite was even admitted to share his royal mutton and turnips. No sooner, however, had Addington, appalled by the reduction of his majority to the not inadequate figure of thirty-seven, hurried from the field of battle, than his intimacy with the king ceased also. The Robinsons and Roses lasted perhaps longer, for they were perennially useful, nor did Eldon ever give the king the chance, save for a few months, of proving that his affections survived office. It is strange that any sovereign should display so thorough a contempt for the loyal service he received. It is stranger still in one whose popularity rested on his English qualities, on his warm heart and affectionate disposition. Again, his habits were not less domestic than those of Mr. Percival, but his home was a hell upon earth. 
what he cared for in his family relations was to maintain the same power over his children that Frederick William I exercised over Frederick the Great. As a consequence, they escaped from his roof as soon and returned to it as rarely as possible. End of section one.